The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 39 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I would remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I hope everyone had a great holiday week here in the United States last week, celebrating our Independence Day on Wednesday. It was in the middle of the week. The weather was great, and I know a lot of people took some time to spend it with family and friends and just have some good time. So we had Richard Kessler on the show last week. He's the director with KPMG's Cybersecurity Advisory Services. He was on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio, and his theory of a unified data governance model in cybersecurity is really gaining some traction after the show. We got a ton of great feedback on the show, lots of compliments about Rich, of course, and his business acumen, and it's no wonder he's a rock star over there at KPMG. So the Cybersecurity Hub did a really nice job, too, recapping the show last week. Check it out. I mean, they really captured some of the key messages from my interview with Rich. They did a fantastic job, and I got a lot of compliments on, on the, the job that they're doing in terms of recapping some of these shows and summarizing the key points of what the guest uh, went over. So check it out. If you missed last week's show because you're sitting on the beach somewhere or sipping boat drinks or doing whatever you were doing, having fun, don't forget to check it out. Richard Kessler. Director of KPMG's Cybersecurity Advisory Services on last week's episode. That's episode number 38 of Task Force 7 Radio. How do you listen to last week's episode, you ask? Well, you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums. That's including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out. TF7 Radio, playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe, folks. So tonight we're going to have 
Mr. Michael Burstein, the CEO and co-founder of an exciting company called CryptoMove on the, on the show with us to talk about the challenges in data security around large enterprises. And we're going to talk a little bit about moving target defense. We're talking about smart cities, drones, quantum computing, key vaults and secrets, and much, much, much more. We're going to have Michael break it all down for us. It's going to be a great show, folks. I'm very excited to have Michael on the show with us tonight. So Michael Bergstein is the CEO and co-founder of CryptoMove, and prior to launching CryptoMove, Mike was a cybercrime intellectual property data security and privacy attorney with Perkins Coie. And when he was there, he represented hypergrowth startups, as well as technology giants as Uber, Amazon, and Facebook on very, very, very complex cybercrime and privacy compliance and litigation matters. So Mike's a wicked smart dude. He attended UC Berkeley for his undergraduate studies, where he led the debate team to the number one national ranking as he researched topics around privacy and cybersecurity. So Mike has a JD from Emory Law School. I mean, who doesn't have one of those in their back pocket, right? I mean, Emory. And he has also visiting student at Berkeley Law, where he worked on cybercrime issues for the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Samuelson Clinic. So he was also an associate editor of the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, researching and writing about issues around cryptocurrencies and data security ethics and compliance. And I got a surprise for you today. We're going to shake it up a little bit. Michael's here with us right now. He's going to do the whole show with us tonight. So Mike, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, George. How's it going? I'm doing well. Really excited to be, uh, be here with you and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, and me as well. So look, you know, talking to you before the show, I really think you have so many interesting things to say. We're going to skip the weekly cybersecurity news and analysis segment on the first segment of the show like we usually do. And we're going to sort of sway away from the normal routine. And we're going to get right down to talking about some very cool subjects that you have a ton of education and experience in. Because I think our listeners are really going to want to hear what you have to say. But first, tell us about your, your latest startup. Tell us about CryptoMove. What's going on down there? Yeah, so that sounds great, um, and I'm excited to be on on the the show. And maybe we'll spin in some of the some of the news uh, of the week. But um, you know, basically, CryptoMove is an early stage startup, so we are uh, focused on data protection and data security, and we're doing something that we call decentralized moving target defense, which basically means that instead of data being a stationary target, we want data to be a moving target, so that for adversaries as they're hiding in systems, planning out their attacks, looking at the infrastructure, it's not a stationary target, but it's continuously changing. Data's moving around, data's getting split up into different pieces, they're getting encrypted, they're shuffling, um, and we can go in a, a lot more depth, uh, and I'm sure we will, but that's kind of a high level. All right, good. You know, I, hey, look, I was doing some research on the company. Is your dad the co-founder of this company? Is that your dad? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you can probably tell by the last names. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, uh, every once in a while, people will, will think we're brothers or something. Um, but uh, there's a pretty big age gap. Um, but um, yeah, so basically, the story is pretty interesting. You know, my dad is our CTO. He's the co-founder. And he invented CryptoMoves technology. And he uh, has a really interesting background for several decades as a distributed systems engineer. He worked at Oracle back in the early days. He um, worked at a bunch of different startups, working on distributed systems. He was on the SQL Standards Committee. And for the last couple decades, he basically had been working on concepts around 
distributed computing and distributed programming languages uh, kind of in his spare time. And about five or six years ago, uh, he had uh, been acquired by uh, Cisco, where he was uh, working early at a startup. They got acquired by Cisco. And that gave him uh, enough flexibility to finally take that distributed computing language he was working on and go full time on it. And so he just did that. He was bootstrapping basically uh, in his uh, home office. And um, in the course of a few years, pretty much finished his distributed programming language. And then he started thinking about what kinds of killer applications can he do with it? What can he really use it for? And that's how the idea of CryptoMove came up. And a few years prototyping that. And then, uh, you know, long story short, here we are. That's amazing. That's amazing. What's it like working with your dad? And your dad's a genius. He comes in and builds everything. That's, that's amazing. And what's that like having a, a father-son uh, entrepreneur team? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, and we definitely um, have to be conscious of it when we speak to investors. Uh, it's one of the questions they like to ask. Uh, but, you know, it works really well for us because he's the CTO. He's the technical guy. He writes the code. Uh, I'm the CEO. I handle the business stuff, um, you know, interface with customers, these sales, uh, financing, marketing, you know, drive our product roadmap. And so there's a nice division of labor. And one of the things that, um, you know, we find when, when I talk to a lot of my, uh, you know, peers that have other startups and one of the biggest challenges with startups is with the founding team, uh, you know, startups can be pretty hard sometimes and there's lots of ups and downs. And so you have to have a strong level of trust with the founding team. And, you know, one nice thing about, you know, either having worked before with your co-founder uh, or, you know, family businesses is you have that base level of trust, uh, which can help out quite a bit. So you bring up a lot of good points and there's a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this show. So if I were to ask you what were some of the biggest challenges you have around the, the starting your own company, what would they be? Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, there's, we could probably do a whole show on it, but, yeah. um, you know, it's definitely, you know, definitely challenging. I, you know, I've, I've talked to a few people actually recently who've started some security startups and, and it seems like the landscape is always changing. Uh, one thing, one challenge that was pretty unique, I think, to CryptoMove is CryptoMove started out as an invention, basically this idea that you could protect data by continuously moving it and splitting up into pieces and shuffling it and this, this approach. And what we've really been focused on in getting the company off the ground is productizing that invention, which means we're essentially taking something out of a lab and trying to build a product around it and a company around it. And I think a lot of startups that get started, uh, you know, some of the ones uh, I really admire are, are, you know, they're looking at a problem, they kind of know the business problem and, and they know uh, what they want to solve. And so they come out with, um, you know, kind of a very bare bones technology solution. Uh, and it's just a totally different approach in terms of how you go to market, uh, you know, what type of capital you need to fund the business. And so I think that was one of the challenges uh, and which, you know, continues to be something we work on is, you know, productization, uh, you know, of a technology. Um, there's many other challenges around recruiting, financing, uh, you know, getting those first early customers. Uh, is, you know, in the, especially in the crowded market. Uh, but, you know, the, those are a few of them. So do you think the, start, uh, the, the startup market in the cybersecurity space is overcrowded right now? 
with all the startups coming out. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, you know a new one every week almost. <laughs> yeah, it does. It sure does. I mean, um, well, so know, I yeah, yeah. I mean, should should people still be starting security companies with, the, with this crowded marketplace? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've, you were talking to um, some CISOs on the show. I know Tom uh, Pageler was on the show and uh, discussing, you know, how they have a threat priority list and yeah. all the hundreds and hundreds of threats. Um, and so, you know, then just you start thinking about as a CISO, as a security team, and, and you're interfacing with the rest of the company and you've got all kinds of limited, uh, you know, priorities and budgets is it really possible that all, you know, I don't know how many hundreds or potentially thousands of security startups, uh, can you even really look at them all? Um, and so I think that in some sense, it is a crowded market. Um, I think at the same time, there is some really exciting innovation uh, that, you know, is being done in security. And that innovation, uh, for whatever reason, is a lot of times it's driven by startups because the bigger companies they're protecting their uh, existing product lines. Um, they, they have a lot to lose uh, from, you know, taking risks, whereas a startup is all about risk. So I think it, it's almost contradictory in the sense that, yes, that there are probably too many security startups, but I do think that there are some really interesting, innovative uh, technologies and products coming out on the market uh, that are coming from startups. Yeah, I agree. We've got to keep the innovation going, right? And so... I mean, you have a lot of experience, though, even before being an entrepreneur. I mean, what was it like being a cybercrime and data protection attorney as for, for some of the largest companies in the world at one point? Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. It definitely, um, you know, helps out with crypto move because, um, you know, I have some experience cleaning up uh, after incidents, uh, you know, from the legal side. And so uh, just taking that view on, on data uh, is relevant. I think that you know, what, uh, one of the things I learned it, when I was, uh, you know, working at the law firm and, and before crypto move was around just, um, you know, how, uh, you know, how much technical literacy, uh, we still need in, um, you know, services, uh, and, you know, with lawyers. And a lot of times, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting technical nuance to some of the incidents that, that end up getting litigated. Uh, but, you know, you've got, you know, potentially, um, you know, judges and, and the legal system and even the laws are not necessarily up to date on the, you know, latest and greatest technologies and attack approaches. And it really can make a difference in, uh, you know, how cases are looked at and decided. Um, and so I, that was pretty eye-opening to me, uh, having come from a startup background into being a lawyer and now back into startup is just that, um, you know, there really is a, a big gap between kind of the topics you, you know, you talk about on the show here and, and the technologies and, you know, the laws sometimes. Uh, and, and I know you have some experience with that, too. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I noticed about your background is that you were big on the, on the college debate team. And I love a good debate. So I, I love a good debate. I love, you know, debating people on, on topics. I think it's fun. I think it's educational. Well, what topics did you research in high school and college on these debate teams around cybersecurity? Were there any cybersecurity debates or was it about other topics? Yes, it's interesting. You know, debate is this really funny activity that, um, you know, a lot of people do, and but it, it doesn't get a ton of publicity, although there's recently been a new Netflix movie not sure if you've seen called Candy Jar, 
uh, about uh, high school debate. Um, it was kind of interesting. No, I haven't uh, seen it yet. And, you know, oh, people talk. Uh, yeah, you might like it. I mean, the funny thing about debate is people talk really fast. Um, and that's one of the funny things. It's almost like an auction level uh, of uh, <laughs> That's kind of why I like speech. it. I get criticized a lot for talking too fast on this show. <laughs> I try to slow it down for everybody. I mean, it's, it's, it's just – Oh, yeah. Thing. I just can't help it. It's just the way I talk. But, I mean, I seem to be uh, – I'm adjusting appropriately. But I know debates are very fast. They're very fast moving. Yeah, for sure. Well, and so uh, you change the topics a lot. And uh, we have different topics every year. But I remember that there was one year where um, basically we researched and advocated a pretty interesting uh, topic around cybersecurity. And the thing about debate is you have to uh, prepare to defend both sides. So it really teaches you analytical thinking. So you're not, uh, your opinion doesn't matter as much. You just kind of have to uh, know all the sides of the argument. And so the, what we were looking at in cybersecurity is should um, cyber attacks and uh, incidents uh, involving cybersecurity be classified as weapons of mass destruction in certain cases. Uh, and what would the implications of that mean for United States foreign policy, for, um, you know, inter you know uh, international relations? Could that um, potentially create some treaties around cybersecurity? Would it potentially um, reduce it? Um, because the interesting thing about cybersecurity is that attacks happen all the time, um, but they're not treated the same way as physical attack. And so there's there's a there's a gap there in, in foreign policy. And so we were researching a lot around foreign policy, international relations, just based on uh, you know the topic. And and so that's what we debated uh, for one year. It was pretty interesting. So, Mike, I'm going to tell our audience a little bit about TF7 Radio, and then we're going to cut the commercial break. But I can't wait to hear. What do you have to say about smart cities and drones and quantum computing and all this stuff? We're going to see how much we can fit in. Just stick with me here for a few minutes, all right? Sounds good. Yeah. So, hey, if you, if you, if you are a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of CryptoMove, Michael Burstein. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of CryptoMove, Michael Burstein. So, Michael, let's jump right into it. Um, we talked a little bit in the first segment of the show that we're going to talk about data security in large enterprises. And so, I want to ask you, we've talked about data security a few times, especially in the last few episodes. What, why is data security usually a lower priority for security teams than other things like firewalls and network security and things like that? Why does that happen in, in especially large organizations? Yeah, it's a good question, George. You know, I was listening to um, the episode about, you know, governance and, and how it can drive innovation. And, um, you know, there was an interesting comment made about how uh, data security isn't always the top uh, priority or agenda item uh, on, on security team. Uh, and, you know, the reasons why they're, they're hard to pin down, but one thing we've been doing at CryptoMove is just We've had an opportunity to talk to dozens and dozens, if not over 100 um, CISOs of large security organizations. And one of the trends that we're seeing is that, you know, security teams and uh, IT teams, they really control the network and they control uh, the infrastructure. Uh, and it makes sense and it has made sense to focus on uh, controlling that for a long time, whereas users control data. Um, and so 
the thought I think has been that if you can control your infrastructure, your network, uh, as long as users are creating and using data inside that infrastructure network, you know, all of those efforts are also increasing data security. But the challenge is users are now um, creating data uh, all over the place, but the security teams really have a hard time uh, getting involved in those workflows. And so I think that's, uh, that's why you see uh, the top cybersecurity giants, their number one selling products, uh, you know, in that massive security market is mostly firewalls and network security. Uh, even as people are moving to the cloud, it, it's taking some time to catch up where data will become more prioritized. If we had to define in a few simple terms what the challenges are around data security in large enterprises, how would you do that? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the one of the top things we see is um, even before an organization can protect its data and um, respond, just understanding what is the landscape, what types of data is out there, who's using it, who's creating it. Uh, many enterprises are still using paper, pen and paper, for surveys to classify data, and so there's a lack of what I would think uh, you might describe as visibility or inventory of the data. And so that's one big problem is it's hard to know where to start. And I think, um, you know, another uh, set of problems just has to do with uh, how difficult it is as a security team to go and interface with all of the users through their technology stacks and workflows for sensitive data. And that's where you see sensitive data spread out and oftentimes, um, you know, not protected as well as people would like. So a lot of people are using encryption and tokenization to protect data. What's your current take on the current encryption approaches and methods that are being used out there right now? Yeah, so it's really interesting. You know, when it comes to data security, oftentimes encryption is sort of the only game in town, you know. Um, and the, the interesting thing about it is we've talked to, um, you know, some of the top Fortune 50 companies that have been working on implementing encryption at rest. And one of the biggest problems is around key management that it ends up being really tough to go and implement these programs. Sometimes they're 18 or 36 month projects. And we just see a, a lot of high friction integration uh, with encryption in general. Um, there's, you know, also the, the prior kind of thing we were talking about where users are really out of the loop when it comes to data security makes encryption really hard to do because most of the time the, encryption projects will try to blend into the background, but will have to interfere with um, users or application owners. And, you know, basically the, the overall approach of um, encryption is also getting baked in to a lot of native tools. So once you go up to Amazon, you go up to Azure, they actually have encryption at rest. It's becoming more and more of a commodity. Um, and so, you know, I think there's some really interesting innovation being done in the data security space. Uh, to kind of go beyond this encryption checkbox. So we said in the intro that we're going to talk about moving target defense. So let's just start out with the, with the benchmarking here. What, what exactly is moving target defense? What does that mean? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, the, there's a few different definitions out there. I think moving target defense is a field of security that has to do with making the attack surface shifting, changing over time. And it's a type of defense to, that imposes a symmetry on cyber adversaries so that when they're looking at an infrastructure and planning the attack, 
there's actually costs to them. And as they try to study it, it keeps changing. And so they're always back to square one. And the whole idea behind moving target defense is to try to take the current disadvantage, which is the adversaries of all the time in the world and defense systems don't change and defenders are outnumbered. So that's an asymmetric advantage. And to try to flip that around and say, how can we actually make it easier to be a defender than an attacker? And um, that's a moving target defense that comes from a lot of academic research, military research, and starting to get commercialized. So how, how is this all different from deception and honeypots that are being used now? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, deception, honeypots, the idea is to essentially create lures and uh, fake infrastructure in a system to try to attract adversaries in order to detect them, right? It's all about detection. Um, and the interesting thing about moving target defense is that it's a kind of a separate school of thought, which says, what we actually just want to do is just make life hard for the adversary. If I'm uh, zigzagging, if I'm running away from a bad guy, um, there's a famous scene in Game of Thrones with the arrow. Um, but if I'm doing that, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to find the bad guys. Uh, I'm just trying to escape. I'm trying to make it hard to, to get caught. And that's the idea of moving target defense. It's not really about detection. Uh, and it's not really about fake resources. It's really taking the real infrastructure, the real data, the real network, and changing its properties, moving it, mutating it, things like that. So let's talk about the history of it a little bit. What's the history of moving target defense research in academia? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's interesting in the sense that many of the, and going back to your previous question about uh, are there too many security startups, um, moving target defense, there's only a few of them. And it's one of the, the rare uh, areas in the ecosystem where there's a lot of academic research behind it. Um, so there have been a few conferences, the uh, ACM computing conferences, uh, in the last few years where uh, students, uh, PhD students and professors gather to present papers, and they really started thinking about moving target defense as a new paradigm. Uh, and you can, you can actually check out some of the stuff they've been doing, some experimentation, um, some, you know, threat modeling research to really show um, you know, how moving target defense can change your risk profile. And that's all being done in the, in the academic world. Uh, and the next conference is actually coming up in October up in Toronto. So how about the military? I mean, is the military using moving target defense now? Yeah. So, you know, they are, and um, there have been a, a few policy papers and um, public documents where, um, the the idea of moving target defense has been prioritized as a, a top area of focus. And um, you can look at um, a few examples. So one is the Air Force, which announced a couple years back that they were focusing on moving target defense and implementing uh, moving target defense network protection. Uh, another one that's interesting is a project called CyberFog, where um, the idea is basically to uh, you know, take a infrastructure like a data center and make it sort of like a fog. Um, and so there, there's interesting uh, projects there. The Department of Homeland Security uh, is heavily focused on moving target defense as well. They actually have uh, a program under the Science and Technology Division. And as part of the um, Department of Homeland Security Silicon Valley Innovation Program, we've actually had an opportunity at CryptoMove uh, to work on moving target defense data protection uh, with DHS. 
which which is one of the projects that uh, we're excited about and they've publicized. Yeah, very cool, very cool. So what are what are some of the threat models that are being used around moving target defense in that respect? Yeah, so you know it's really important to to look at threats and risk prioritization, right? And I think yep. um, you, you guys have covered that on the show a lot. And and the the point is that security teams resources are limited, and uh, you can't defend everything. Uh, and so it's important to to look at a risk based approach. And so I think one of the most exciting areas around moving target defense is coming up with those risk models, primarily um, trying to see from a game theory approach. So I think that's the most promising is when you can take game theory and almost simulate the back and forth of an adversary going through the kill chain, doing reconnaissance, identifying assets, and then all of the different steps. And then on the defense side, how that infrastructure is responding. And you can actually calculate uh, probabilities and, and effects and even run models and, and simulate attack attacks uh, and there's a lot uh, going on there with moving target defense. There's a few uh, papers, uh, you know, that we've actually highlighted on our blog. So, so what types of security problems can moving target defense be applied to? Does it apply to networks or application level stuff or maybe data level stuff? I and mean, where are we at with it? That's right. Well, so at CryptoMove, we really focus on data, but the overall field of moving target defense, most um, up until we came around was focused on networks. Things like changing, um, you know, how the network uh, looks, addresses, uh, rotating things. At the application level uh, is also a very common moving target defense technique using, um, you know, not to get too technical, uh, you know, but ASLR or address space layout randomization. And absolutely at the data level, and that's CryptoMove, uh, which, you know, we, we were talking about earlier. So are there other solutions for moving target defense? I mean, what does that landscape look like? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few. I mean, there's CryptoMove. Um, there's uh, interesting projects uh, coming out of the ACM conference. One was called um, WebMTD, uh, which was a moving target defense approach uh, to, you know, prevent attacks uh, on a website. Um, there's, you know, interesting, uh, projects around, um, network-based, uh, moving target defense. Um, you know, in terms of the application level, there's something called Mixer, M-I-X-R, uh, which was a paper presented on, um, you know, application level moving target defense and what they called re-randomization for binaries. Um, you know, another approach that came out of China recently, just a, a couple, within the last few months, there was something called the cyber mimic system where they had a hacking competition, 22 teams uh, from China, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, Japan, uh, attempted half a million attacks on this system uh, and, and tried to compete for it. And, and there's an interesting paper on that. Um, so it's definitely an active and fun area of security. So another method that people are using is decentralizing data to protect data. So what's the idea behind decentralized data? I mean, we've heard of blockchain, uh, we heard of, you know, uh, Filecoin. Uh, can you distill all this for us? Can you break it down for us? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, you know, the, the decentralized data piece, it, it really starts from a storage. You know, people are trying to store data in decentralized systems and distributed systems. And for a decade or more, um, for a long time, people have been 
doing things like splitting data up and spreading it out. There was a project called Berkeley Ocean Store, where that's really what they were trying to do is create like a hard drive across all the scientists. And, um, you know, more recently, there was company like uh, CleverSafe uh, that split data up for storage for uh, uh, resiliency. And now with blockchain, you see a bunch of projects trying to use the blockchain to essentially the idea is to say, hey, right now we've got Amazon and Google and Microsoft and they've got these big clouds. There's data centers, but most people are moving to the clouds and that's very centralized. But perhaps in the future, that will go away and really we'll just be decentralizing data everywhere. And so um, that's kind of kind of where it's at. And for security, it's very interesting because if you can split data up and put it in different places in a system, and especially if that data is continuously moving around, if it's changing properties and you're keeping track of it, then it could be a, a security mechanism to protect the data, um, almost like a blender. Um, and so that's, that's part of the, the idea of decentralized data. So considering all that, I mean, will central data clouds go away in the future? It's like, it's like, let me yeah. think there or what? I mean, you know, if you look at computing, uh, there's been this trend of you had mainframes and then desktops, and now everybody's got laptops and even mobile devices, and now it's going back where everything's back in the cloud. And it almost seems like a seesaw. Um, and there's, you know, as the the concept certainly is that, that the clouds may, um, you know, not persist. Or even if they do, you see a lot of organizations today wanting to work on multiple cloud environments or even their data center. And that almost is already a little bit of that decentralized data world. So we hear a lot about blockchain. Are enterprises really using blockchain or is this just hype? Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, if you follow cryptocurrencies, and I know you had uh, Tom on the show from BitCo, and, um, you know, I think that it's definitely big, and, and there's, there's a lot going on there. It's a massive market, and it's, there's real value um, being created. But one of the controversies that I've read about uh, is around Ripple, and uh, how much are enterprises really using Ripple or um, other cryptocurrencies um, and, and, you know, that's, that gets debated a lot. One of the things that I, I see uh, from where we sit, because crypto move can be used to um, secure blockchain applications by uh, securing the data and the keys. And so we actually do see these projects happening. And so I can, you know, I know that there are projects in the Fortune 500 where enterprises, and they're not always banks, you know, banks are working on this, but other companies too and other sectors uh, you can actually see recently a Marisource announced uh, interesting blockchain project in the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal. And really what they're trying to do is they're trying to use blockchain uh, as a trust mechanism, uh, as, a, as a ledger uh, for their business. Uh, and so I think in that sense, uh, enterprises are using blockchain just like they might use any type of new um, you know, distributed technology because uh, it, it, it's really potentially innovative for them. So considering all that too, like what does the future landscape of data decentralization look like? Yeah, so I think, you know, if you look at just the, some of the ones you mentioned, like Filecoin, right. um, you know, and, and those, I mean, they've had ICOs and there's a lot of capital being invested in um, innovating on these technologies. So I think that some sort of decentralized storage system will exist. I also think um, 
there's there's opportunity for decentralization in existing data centers. So you can decentralize data in Amazon or in a data center. And I think enterprises are going to start doing that uh, even without using cryptocurrencies. Um, and, and we've seen that uh, with CryptoMove. Um, and, and, you know, it's really, it's hard to predict though. You know, it's rapidly changing and, uh, you know, fast moving landscape. So what are some of the security risks with blockchain decentralized applications? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's the interesting thing is uh, it ha- it's still being studied. People are looking at it. As with most new technologies, security is often the last thing that, uh, that gets brought in. Uh, some of the things we know is with blockchain applications, they have a lot more keys uh, because to do transactions on the blockchain, you need private keys. And so when people lose their keys, sometimes they can't uh, find their keys. What will happen is they can't recover their data. Somebody steals the keys. They have access to data. Uh, and so it's incredibly important uh, to have uh, strong key protection. And the, one of the founders of Ethereum, I think just this week was talking about this issue uh, publicly at a conference about how, uh, you know, it's going to get hard for cryptocurrencies to move to the mainstream without strong key protection. Uh, there's also interesting challenges with data protection um, because you can't really store large documents on the blockchain. You need some sort of what they call off-chain secure storage. Um, and then there's, you see the 51% attacks uh, where, um, you know, that has to do with, um, you know, basically taking over the, um, you know, decision-making power to, to sort of change the rules of the blockchain uh, that is another potential attack. Okay, Michael, we got to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Michael Burstein after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of CryptoMove, Michael Burstein. So, Michael. We were talking in the first segment of the show that we were going to start mentioning smart cities and what's that all about. Um, so what are the security risks around cities like Atlanta and some other cities? Atlanta just recently has some huge problems that were publicized in the news. But in terms of smart cities, what are the security risks around these types of, of cities? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, smart cities is really interesting. And, um, you know, we've been exposed to it at CryptoNote just because, uh, some of the early adopters for our data security uh, technology have been in cities, and we've been working with NIST on um, on that. But, you know, if you look at Atlanta, they were hit with a ransomware attack, basically an attack that uh, over-encrypted their data and made it so that they weren't able to access it, uh, which is one of the most common attacks on cities. Uh, other things that uh, we've seen happen with cities is um, city infrastructure. Um, getting taken over uh, by botnets for DDoS attacks, uh, although now a lot of times that's uh, being used for cryptocurrency mining. Um, and, um, you know, emergency systems take over. We saw that in Texas. Um, there's been some issues with water supplies. Um, and then there's some other really interesting issues around cities and data, and they have to do with privacy. Uh, and uh, as more and more cities are doing what they call you know, making themselves smart, uh, smart cities. Um, they're turning everything into a data collection and sensor. And so you saw that in Barcelona where they're really collecting data on all their citizens. And that was um, celebrated as this innovative project. But then they realized, hey, this is actually a privacy issue and started thinking about how could they use um, cryptography actually uh, to, to protect their citizens uh, more so there has to there's definitely security risks and um, there's privacy risks associated with those. So how is NIST responding to uh, cybersecurity threats for cities? I know that Crypto Move is involved with the, the NIST Global Smart Cities Challenge. What's that all about? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so you know the interesting thing about cities is that they're very fragmented, right? So cities don't have a common um, infrastructure to uh, do things like mount cyber defense. They're all out on their own. And so what NIST tries to do, NIST is a federal agency in the United States, uh, and they help set standards and help pursue research on uh, encryption and um, security. And they have this challenge called the Global Smart Cities Challenge, where they're bringing cities together, they're bringing technology innovators together, and having them partner up to create proofs of concepts and case studies for how to secure a smart city. 
And so they made 2018 the year of cybersecurity for smart cities. And uh, CryptoMove has actually been involved. We're working with a city in the Bay Area, we just announced, with uh, San Leandro, and uh, working on securing one of the largest smart lights deployments over uh, 4,000 lights, um, and uh, applying uh, security technology. Uh, but beyond just the technology piece of it and data, we're, we're doing some interesting work on threat modeling uh, as well. Really? So what's a threat model for a city attack surface look like? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's huge, right? You know, because you've got the city, it's sprawling. There's, there are many different systems. You pay uh, taxes and fees and fines and parking tickets and uh, oftentimes healthcare, uh, legal, you know, police systems. Um, you know, I, I know you have experience with that. And so there's a lot of uh, different infrastructure. And, and so one of the things that, that we've been doing with NIST is uh, trying to create that threat model, trying to really understand, you know, what, first of all, from an impact perspective, you got to keep the lights on as a city. You need services running uh, from a data perspective. And we partnered up with uh, Pete Herzog, who's actually an expert in threat modeling and methodologies and, uh, you know, through his work um, at ISACOM. And so we've been working with Pete uh, and NIST on, on developing essentially a, a threat model reference architecture for cities that any city can pick up and use uh, to, to kind of prioritize their data security. So what are some of the innovations around smart city security these days? I mean, what's coming out of it in terms of innovation and disruptive technologies and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, so it's definitely a innovative space. You know, I was talking with um, uh, one of the investors, one of our investors at Social Capital, Jay, who, who was, uh, you know, doing a lot of, taking a lot of meetings with mayors and learning about uh, city innovation and just the, the overall uh, innovation activity in the total market and budgets of cities is uh, massive. In some cases, dwarfs the certain parts of the private sector. And so you see innovation um, around data, um, around networks, around how cities are delivering services um, and, you know, obviously implementing things like multi-factor authentication. I think the most impactful one I see uh, so far is a move to the cloud is where cities can get rid of their on-prem uh, infrastructure and really start leveraging cloud-based software to deliver services. And uh, we've definitely, you know, heavily focused on delivering crypto move as a cloud service. And, uh, you know, it's partially because it just seems like, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the best way to kind of maximize those limited resources, uh, especially for a city. So one thing we haven't spoke about on this show yet is drones. And we said we we're going to talk about drones. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about drones. What are some of the security threats around drones? Yeah, I mean, so it's really interesting. And, and similar to cities, you know, we've kind of been drawn into this space via CryptoMiv because we could protect the data on drones. We could protect the keys related to drones. And we've actually had our software running on drones uh, with some of our customers. Um, and so... You know, just like with blockchain, with anything else, drones, the technology is so new, security is usually the afterthought. And so things people are worried about are spoofing the signal takeover of the drone, uh, physical attack, like shooting the drone down and then trying to download the data off of it and controlling uh, the drone or disrupting the control of the drone is also a common attack. And so, you know, uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, drones flying over a football stadium and, um, you know, if it, if it gets uh, messed with, 
that could potentially hurt some people. And so you, you definitely see a lot of different attacks on drones. Yeah. So how do existing drone technologies approach security these days, considering that and that some of the attacks that you just mentioned, what's the approach? What's the methodology? Yeah, I mean, there, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's not much there really. And um, uh, it's because it's such a new technology. Um, you've got, you know, control protocol called Mavlink that uh, is used to control the drones, tell them how to go up and down, left and right. Um, and, and out of the box, um, you know, Mavlink has some interesting uh, vulnerabilities. There have been some studies on the encryption technologies uh, applied to drones, uh, having some holes. There was some some famous, uh, uh, got some publicity on a, on a drone hack, um, I think at Black Hat or RSA uh, a couple years ago. Um, so it's really just just starting out. And, you know, some of the work we, we're doing uh, is securing uh, drones, securing the Mavlink protocol. Um, securing the data on drones. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, you know, around it is is how do you do encryption on on such a small device, and and it definitely requires some innovation. So let's talk about quantum computing a little bit. We've recently talked about quantum computing on the show. We talked about encryption. What's your take on quantum computing in the future, and how it's going to affect the, the encryption technologies that we use today? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed that segment. And I think that, um, you know, the potential implications are massive, right? And the, the gentleman from IBM was talking about how uh, quantum computing can, you know, really potentially overnight, if it happens and when it happens, uh, make current encryption technologies, um, you know, vulnerable. And so, so I think one of the biggest questions, the most interesting things to think about is just, you know, is it going to happen and when is it going to happen? Is it going to be tomorrow? Has it already happened? And is it going to be in 10 years? You know, one of the interesting things about Enigma, for instance, um, you know, that encryption famously was cracked for some time before it was publicly announced. So if you really had a quantum computer, would you necessarily want to announce it? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. But, um, you know, I think that with quantum computing, the, the basic idea is, as you've talked about on the show, um, you know, they'll be able to potentially take data, even if it's encrypted, and read the clear text. And so, um, you know, I think that we're doing some interesting work around that at CryptoMove, we can talk about, um, but it's really early uh, in, the, in the solution phase. It's one of those problems that uh, a lot of people believe is inevitable, but we don't exactly know when it's going to happen. So we talked a little bit about what people need to do to prepare for this type of thing. What can enterprises do in your mind to prepare for quantum computers breaking the encryption that we're using today? It's going to disrupt their entire uh, data security model for sure. I mean, what do they need to do to prepare for this? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I mean, what, you know, what to do is really a very tough question. I think one thing is first just to get, to wrap a, get a handle around it and kind of wrap the mind share uh, to try to, place that uh, in the enterprise's priority. And maybe some enterprises don't prioritize that as much and some, some might. Um, I think the enterprises that are really focused on driving innovation uh, do focus on quantum uh, and post-quantum technologies. Um, you know, the idea behind CryptoMove, just our approach is to basically say that, yes, if, if you have the data that's encrypted, you could crack it, but let's make it hard to get it. And the way we do that is, we split the data up, we encrypt the pieces, they're continuously moving around, re-encrypting with different keys, changing their properties and location. So what, by the time you grab them all, they're actually uh, not adding up to one piece. And so that's, that's one 
uh, approach. Uh, some people are taking it uh, to fight uh, quantum computing. There's an interesting uh, paper on a uh, post-quantum uh, quantum-proof communication method called path hopping at, presented at the latest Moving Target Defense Conference, uh, which which is similar. Um, you know, but I think the way that enterprises really need to focus on it is just to um, take an innovative approach to security, right? So a lot of security is about the basics and, um, you know, putting those in place and communicating with the organization. But I think that it's on, um, you know, it's incumbent to also try to push the envelope to try to prepare for these more advanced threats, at least for certain organizations. When you, when you decentralize all this data and you break all this data down into different pieces and in the state that it's in, when it's stored in, in that broken down state, is, is that even considered data at that point by some definitions in, in the EU? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question, right? Because you've got all these regulations, especially in Europe, on data and what you're supposed to do with data. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of back and forth between regulators and uh, financial institutions, but many other organizations on, on what the definition is. And I think that if you're splitting up, let's say, a, a credit card number uh, into, you know, three different pieces and uh, each one of them is encrypted and has... Uh, you know, changed its properties and, and padded with fake data and they're all spread out. Uh, you know, what is that? And I've certainly had those conversations. Um, I think that we're about to see a lot of interesting litigation and definition and rulemaking to try to define data. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's one of those issues where the law is going to have to catch up to the technology. Yeah, so let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about key management. Key management is a challenge for a lot of organizations, especially larger organizations, in my opinion. What's the current landscape around encryption and key management? Yeah, I think it's it's one of the biggest challenges, and I'll never forget some of the conversations we've had with large organizations that tell us that you know they've had targets for for encryption of you know modest, like sixty percent, and they've been working at it for ten years, and they're having trouble cracking you know, 15 or 20%. And it often boils down to key management. And one of the issues now is, um, you know, the proliferation of the keys. And so, um, you know, the, the landscape is changing. And I think, uh, you know, there's the definition of keys is changing uh, and, and what they're for is changing quite rapidly. So are there more encryption keys now than ever before? I think that's fair. You know, I mean, just if thinking about um, data is getting encrypted with different keys. There's more data. Um, there's more, um, you know, services. So when you think about containerization, oftentimes containers will have uh, their own set of keys. There's cloud services now uh, with keys. And, you know, I think that they're just a massive proliferation of encryption keys than, uh, than we've seen. So what, what kind of other keys are there other than encryption keys? Are there like API keys or what are the current approaches or debates around this, this uh, topic? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if, if you think about key management, most people think about encryption keys. I'm encrypting my data, I've got the key. But, um, you know, what about uh, API key to Salesforce or, uh, or to Box or um, even just uh, API key that may be a mobile app user interface holds to a backend server. And there's all sorts of those types of keys. There's other uh, 
what we call application infrastructure secrets, um, things like code signing certificates, um, you know, and, and just all sorts of different, you know, material that's similar to keys that what an adversary would, would love to grab, right? What you would consider the crown jewels. And, um, you know, there's some interesting approaches uh, to managing them and, and people are trying to get their handle on it. So what are some of the tools developers using to manage these keys? Yeah, so right now, you know, the, there's, there's kind of a spectrum of, of best practices and, and not as best practices. Um, you know, one interesting example just from this week, um, you know, where there was a, one of the big uh, cryptocurrency uh, exchanges, Binance, had to reset all of its API keys in mass just a couple days ago. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the reason they did that was just as a precautionary measure. Um, but it just shows that, you know, the, the power of it. Um, and, and many of the, you know, breaches that we see are, are really just due to mismanaged uh, API keys. And so uh, some developers will end up putting them in GitHub or putting them in config files, encrypting those config files, uh, you know, on the local server, uh, hopefully, but they're hard to manage. Um, and there's some open source tools. So companies like Pinterest and Square uh, and Lyft right. have right. actually, um, they've actually open sourced uh, some of their key management technologies. Um, and, it, it, you know, one of the things when, when we see a lot of projects like that, it, it shows that it's a big problem. Uh, that there aren't good solutions out there. And so people are trying to make their own. So how does security fit into DevOps and DevSecOps to help the software development lifecycle manage these keys better? Yeah, that's a good question, you know, because as a security team, you don't want to slow down development, right? right. Um, but at the same time, you, you want to try to influence uh, secure development processes. And so I think that, um, one of the things we see, and, and this is something we're, you know, we're seeing a lot with crypto move is security teams kind of moving from a, a you know, control or lockdown strategy more towards a services strategy to where security teams will provide a uh, key vault uh, or, you know, some sort of secure set of APIs for key management to developers to essentially add tools to the developer's toolbox that make development more secure or provide, um, you know, secure data storage uh, as a service. And so I think this idea of security uh, starting to provide services to users, whether they're developers, business users, um, rather than just controlling the activities of those developers, but having that services mindset, I think the cloud can help a lot with that. Um, I think can, can really sort of put security uh, on, a, on a different playing field when, when it's interacting with some of these stakeholders. So, Mike, we're just about out of time. It was great having you on the show. Thanks for sticking with me the whole time, man. It was fun. It was very informative. Thanks so much. Thanks, George. Had a great time, and uh, thank you. Yeah, I want to have you back. I want to have you back often. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, we've run out of time, folks. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. 
Be sure to join your host, George Ritas, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 